earlier this week, I don't, I don't do many posts. I'll, I'll play something on the, on the guitar and post it to Facebook or, or uh, you know, mention my brother on Siblings Day or show a picture of my dog on Dog Day, whatever. Is it Dog Day or Pet Day? I don't know. I always catch them late, right? Like my brother posts up, oh, Siblings Day, and I see it up there, and I'm like, oh, I forgot. <laughs> and then I feel like I got to like, outdo him in what he says you know, to make up for it. But uh, so earlier in the week, I posted something that was uh, a bit different. I, I think we have it here, just the first one. Um, <clears throat> Star Wars, <laughs> the story of an orphan boy who becomes radicalized after a military strike kills his family. He is indoctrinated into an ancient religion, joins a, rebel, a band of rebel insurgents, and carries out a terrorist attack, killing 300,000 people. <laughs> Right, right. So I have a friend, uh, Jess Peacock. Out, he's a minister at a UCC church in um, in Washington. Although I think he's moving here soon, and he posts this every every May fourth, every year on May the fourth. May the fourth be with you, right? And uh, he, he has no comments, uh, but it's interesting because it sort of shocks us into a very different perspective. Uh, things look differently. And what's interesting about this is that it's, it slides into that perspective so easily. Because when you read it like that, you're like, oh yeah, that's exactly what happened, right? Uh, and I, just, I never thought of it that way. And there's a reason we never think of it that way. Um, and the reason is that Movies like Star Wars, and I think The Lord of the Rings would fall under a similar category, is that your lines between the good and the bad are pretty clear. With the exception of uh, people like Anakin who turn to the dark side or the white wizard who uh, joins Sauron. With a couple exceptions, uh, Boromir and his temptation to take the ring. Uh, when you watch those movies, you have a very clear idea of who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Apparently there's no bad women. It's always good guys and bad guys. But on Mother's Day, there's no bad women. And uh, there's good women. And so uh, it shocks us. And it forces us to think, oh, is Luke really a bad guy? <laughs> I never thought of him like that. Uh, I think we have another one. Here's another one. This is a t-shirt, I think. Yeah. The number just jumped from 300,000 to a million, too. Yeah. 525.77. I saw that movie over at Brunswick uh, when it came out. Um, <clears throat> so it shocks us, and it forces us to ask the question, wow, this is really uh, different um, than I thought. Now, we're in a sermon. This Hebrews... Not this sermon. We're in a, the book is a sermon. The, he, the book of Hebrews is a sermon. And in today's passage, the author, whoever that is, does something a bit similar to this, where it kind of shocks us into a new perspective. And I think it's meant to be shocking like that. Um, we have been talking about how Jesus is greater than 
angels, greater than Moses, that he offers a better rest than whatever Moses entered into. Uh, Eduardo introduces to Jesus as a better priest, a better high priest. And it's all feeling good and it's all very encouraging. And then today we get into this passage, which quite frankly for years for me has been a bit frightening to read. And it was funny because Eduardo brought the, the, the uh, commentaries back that I had loaned to Will a few weeks ago. And he says, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to touch that passage. I'm just going to deal with the high priest. I stopped right when it goes dark on us. And uh, he said, I suggest that you skip over this and get right on to the Melchizedek. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. Um, but, you know, it's in here. And it's in here for a reason. And so the passage today jolts us to consider um, that we can walk away from all these good things. Um, that Luke Skywalker might be a bad guy. Um, <clears throat> and so we're going to dive right into it. Um, and this is a sermon, and so there's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of wordplay. There's a lot of things where the preacher, whoever this is, who wants us to be fully devoted to Jesus is going to pull out some tricks in order to startle us and jolt us to think about uh, where we're at in that relationship with Jesus. So devotion, if we're talking about Hebrews as better than, uh, devotion, being devoted, is better than indifference. Devotion is better than indifference. So we left last week in this incredible... This, this paragraph is setting us up for some just mind-blowing theology. And it says, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of the deep reverence for God, because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And in this way, God qualified him as a high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is this mysterious figure from the book of Genesis, and we're going to get into that next week. But the preacher here, the sermon, takes a turn away from this deeper material. And one of the things that I think is very important here, that this is very purposeful, that this person talks about Jesus' suffering, is I think we have to remember that this is a congregation, we're not quite sure when it was written, but they are, they're struggling. They're struggling. They are wondering if their labor is in vain. Uh, their numbers are decreasing. They, uh, they're wondering if uh, this is all worth it. Probably many of them are Jewish Christians who are wondering, why did I add on this worship to Jesus when maybe worship was going okay before and maybe just slide back into whatever routines they had before becoming Christian? They're struggling and they're going through trials. And so it's really interesting here that to set up this next section... They talk about this incredible suffering that Jesus goes through. That Jesus is devoted in his trials. 
um, that he sticks with it. And so you have this... uh, This idea of Jesus' suffering and his devotion to God. And later on, in, the, in chapter 12, we're going to get to this phrase where the, the pastor says this, Strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And so they're presenting things about Moses and about rest and about high priest. And he's going to go into Melchizedek. And he wants them to understand this deep theology. And that's why. So they can strip off the things that entangle them. So that they can continue on in this race and stick with it and be devoted right to the end, right through their own suffering. And he reminds us of Jesus' suffering as well. And it's... You know, it it doesn't take a lot of reading in the Gospels to be reminded that Jesus talks about this as well. In particular, I was thinking the end of John. As Jesus approaches the cross, and as we're wrapping up this Gospel, you know, he says things like, uh, serving is the path to blessing. This is after washing the disciples' feet. Go ahead and do likewise. This is the, it's an interesting phrase. This is the path to blessing. If we want blessing, here's what it is. It's about serving. He says, uh, a student is not above the teacher. If I suffer, you're going to suffer. This is what it means to follow me. And then with Peter, after the resurrection, Peter's trying to talk about, he's trying to deflect some of the attention onto the other disciple, John, and Jesus is like, yeah, don't worry about him. Um, Someday you will be led and bound. And then there's this note. This was to indicate what kind of death (laughs) Peter would suffer. And these aren't feel-good passages. Um, And so it it presents this picture um, that shouldn't be a surprise to us because Jesus was crucified. We worship a man who was crucified and resurrected. That that path involves some suffering and some trial. And that's what this person is addressing. And it seems like we've had a lot of that. It seems like the the cloud of pandemic has amplified all the other things that we would normally struggle with anyway. It's just been one of those years. And I sound like a broken record, but quite frankly, this whole year sounds like a broken record. Um, And that's okay. Um, We'll get through it, and God is with us through that. He's a sympathetic high priest who leads us to God. And so devotion for Jesus is better than indifference. And we see that in his life. And that's what this person is reminding us. And we're all getting ready. Let's, tell, let's talk about Melchizedek. We always want to know about this guy. What's going on? And he takes a detour at that point. And he says, There is much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain especially since you are so spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You, yeah, it's feel good. It's feel good. Yeah. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk 
and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now this seems like a real put-down. Now milk in itself, that's not bad. It's just that it's really good for someone who's a baby. What he's talking about is this issue of maturity, and there's sort of this, he's putting them down. I mean, it's kind of, uh, we don't know who wrote this, but it, it, it feels like a lot of what Paul the Apostle Paul does too. And there's a bit of rhetoric uh, going on here. Um, when he talks about maturity, this is interesting. Um, <clears throat> there is much more we would like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. And later on, he talks about, so let us stop going on, this is 6 verse 1, I'm just going to jump there real quick. Let us stop going over the basic teachings about Jesus again and again. Let us go on instead to become mature in our understanding. In other versions, it's going to read perfection. Let us become perfect. It reminds me of when Jesus says, be perfect as your, heaven and fa- your Father in heaven is perfect. And I think we read that, I read that, and I'm like, what are you talking about? How can that be? And <clears throat> one way to think about it is... Uh, If you go to a, a concert, um, let's call it, a, let's say it's an it's a orchestra. A lot going on, a lot of movement going on. And it's a Mozart piece. Let's say it's Mozart's Requiem, one of my favorites. I love that piece. And when he talks about being perfect, you can go to hear that piece and be blown away by it. And you might go to a different orchestra and hear it just as well, slightly different, with a different nuance. and the, comes down to the conductor and how they're going to shape what this piece looks like. And it comes out, we can call it perfect. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about being Mozart. Jesus is Mozart. Jesus is the one who goes before us and lives this perfect life. And he's saying, follow in that. Live up to that. And so what he's claiming here is that they're a bit sluggish in their faith, uh, dull, dim-witted, <laughs> and a bit immature. And he's like, you know, I'd really like to go on to talk about this deeper stuff so that we can shake off all the stuff that entangle us, but I'm not sure you guys, you all are ready for that. And so he talks about maturity. So he's snapping them in onto attention, you know? He's saying, Luke's actually a bad guy, by the way. This is a terrorist attack, you know, and it's a change of perspective where they're like, if they're nodding off, I know no one here ever does that, but they're nodding off, they're awake. Like, what did he say? Is this a bit insulting? And it's a rhetorical ploy. He's being rhetoric. The issue here isn't so much a theological issue. The issue here is a practical one. He wants to motivate them to continue on, even though things are difficult. Devotion is better than indifference. Um, the goal is to stimulate a resolve and an alert understanding and maturity. And so he goes on, and it gets worse. Yeah. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. 
Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Perfect. Surely, we don't need to start over again with fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, which seems like things we're always trying to wrap our minds around, right? And so God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. So he lists all these basic things that um, would, be very, would, be, would have a counterpart in Judaism. We think that perhaps this crowd is a Jewish crowd, Jewish Christians. And so things like baptism was practiced in Judaism with new converts um, and other ritual washings as well. Um, there was a belief in the resurrection, a general resurrection at the time of judgment, uh, faith in God, turning away, returning to God. All those things are basic things that they would have understood. And he's like, we don't need to go over this again. We want to move on. <clears throat> and so, um, <clears throat> you know, these fundamentals, repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection, judgment. And it seems to indicate that in the Christian life, in this life of devotion, there's always some sort of movement. Uh, there's not this static life. We are either moving towards in this maturity and growing towards Christ, or there is a, a drift happening. Um, but apparently he seems to think that they are just kind of floating there. And he's trying to wake them up and saying that this is, there's no floating, there's no static movement, there's no, uh, it's just dynamic movement, moving forward. And he's trying to get them to think about this. And then he says this, which is always been frightening. So I'm so glad I studied it this week. Because typically I read this and I don't really want to deal with it. I'm just like, let's just move on to the better stuff. Right? Melchizedek. <clears throat> he says in verse 4, it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven shared in the Holy Spirit who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. And who then turn away from God. It's impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are making, are nailing him to the cross again and holding him up to public shame. And he ends with a proverbial statement here. When the ground soaks up falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it's useless. The farmer will soon condemn it and burn it. So he makes this statement. It's impossible. For someone that's turned away from Jesus, it's impossible for them to return. Now there's a couple things that are going through my mind when I read that. First of all, what I feel like is that there is, and this is the baggage I hear so many people carry, so many people. There's some sin out there, and once you've gotten to that point, if you sin too much, you're just gone. Right? I come back to way back, one of your earlier sermons, and, you know, my, my furnace broke. God is mad at me. That's why. This view of karma, where everything, anything that goes bad, we just feel like God is upset with us. And that we carry this baggage where we feel we're so bad anyway. And so when we read something like that, we think, oh, my fears are confirmed. 
there's this point, there's this theological point where it just I can't go on any further. <clears throat> I can't remember the second thing. I thought, <laughs> what did I say? There's two things that go through my mind, right? I don't know. Maybe I'm stuck on that. It's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. This idea that we get so far, and that's it. Oh, here's the second thing. This contradicts what we understand about God. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. With God, all things are possible. Amen. Our church has so many people in it that grew up in the faith or going to church, had their parents' faith, had a time where they kind of didn't go to church, and then came back. We've seen so many people like that at North Harbor who have grown in incredible ways as a result of that kind of returning. So we've seen that. We know that that happens. And so... What is going on here? Yeah, what is he saying? What is he saying? Yeah. So we, when we read this, we tend to think of it as a theological point. That there's this point at which you get that it's, uh, it's too much. There's a sin that you just can't go beyond. And it's important when we're reading a sermon to understand that the point isn't so much, in this case, theological as it is practical. Just as we can point to people that we know that have come back, I think we can also point to people that have kind of drifted away. And at the same time, I don't think that they can't. I don't think that it's impossible. It's just that they've drifted away. And we're waiting for that moment, that opportunity, that aha moment where they decide to return or turn, which is repentance. I, I had a conversation, I was, I was home alone, and uh, I got a call from someone I don't know, this is not someone at our church, and it was a woman who maybe got my name from a friend of a friend, I don't know, but she called me, and she and her husband were going through a divorce, and she wanted my advice um, and I, tell her, I told her what I tell lots of people. I'm not trained as a counselor. I can listen. I'm happy to talk with you and listen and share some thoughts. But this might be beyond what I can, my skills. But she starts talking, and it seemed like the husband was kind of leading the way in this divorce. Perhaps she was surprised by it. And she wanted to save the marriage and, and have this session where they sat down and talked together. But he was unwilling to do so. And I don't know if it's because I didn't know her. Um, but it was one of those moments where I felt like I just felt connected to the spirit. You know, there's, there's on a good day, you, you're just going to get, you know, whatever advice comes out of my mouth. <laughs> but this was one of those moments where I felt like, wow, I feel connected. But it was much more direct than I'm used to speaking. And I basically said, listen, uh... I'm sorry you're going through this, but if your husband's not going to sit down at a counselor, it's not going to work. If he's unwilling to talk, it's just not going to happen. 
you both need to be willing to be to work on this. And uh, here are some other people to talk to. Um, but if he's not willing to sit down at the table, this is probably not going to go well. And it's just. And I feel like it was a very direct, and it's similar to what he's saying here. That there's this drifting away that can happen. I remember uh, another, uh, I was playing cribbage night, and uh, this is also someone that's not at our church, that, um, and he had walked away from the faith, and he was training to be a, a minister. And what tripped him up was something that, very, that theologically could be explained and sorted out pretty easily. Um, but for whatever reason, this one thing just tripped him up, and he he left that path, left that uh, that vocational path of becoming a minister. Great guy. Well, really good to play cribbage with because he's not that good at it. And uh, but great guy, and someone I see on a regular basis. Now, it he has every chance to return. To repent. He's not beyond hope. And so when we read this, we get these two things together. One is, I'm junk that we all wrestle with. This idea that we're just beyond God's help. That God isn't sympathetic. And that there's a point. And that's not the point that this is making. Number one, because he's making a rhetorical plea here. It's rhetoric. It's a kind of a playful you guys aren't that smart sort of talk. You know, this is a um, talking to your kids saying, I, you can't wash the dishes in a half hour. There's no way you could do that. It's reverse psychology is what's going on. He's trying to get their attention and get them to wake up to hear. And now that he's called them stupid <clears throat> and immature, oh, what? Is he, is he talking about us? <clears throat> He says it's impossible. And it's a stark statement. He's not making a theological statement that there is a point beyond which there's no return. With God, all things are possible. Amen. His goal is to encourage growth. Devotion is better than a difference, right? Jesus is better than the angels, better than Moses. He offers a better rest, he's a better high priest. And this kind of devotion is better than indifference. <clears throat> it reflects a, a, like kind of a practical frustration on the part of the preacher here rather than an absolute theological claim about the limits of God's grace. God's grace is limitless. And so he goes on, and here's where we see that term. Here's where we see... that he believes in the congregation. Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe that it applies to you. You're not like that. We are confident that you are meant for better things that come from salvation. What are these better things? The things we've been teaching on through this whole series. Better than angels. Better rest. Better than Moses. Better high priest. You are made for these kind of things that this whole book is about. And we're about to get into some really deep stuff. Mind-blowing stuff. This is what you are made for. And we're confident that this is what you can experience. God is not unjust. 
He will not forget how hard you have worked for Him and how you have shown your love to Him by caring for other believers. So this raises the question, not just better things, what are the better things, but better than what? Better than what? Better than their frustrations. Better than their feeling that they're all alone. Better than the trials that they're going through. You're made, and we're confident that you will experience these better things. I love this. God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked and how you have shown your love to Him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then, as we practice and live out this faith, even in the times of trial, even in the times of pandemic, even in the times of whatever it is we're going through, we we will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going on to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. And then he's going to talk about Abraham. That's the people he's talking about, and we're going to get to it later in the book. You're going to experience a faith like we're used to reading it. Abraham, what a great guy, drops everything and goes rescues his nephew. Gages in a war, brings him back. Moses, all these people, they all have their flaws, but they have some moments of greatness. And he's saying, this is for you as well, as we continue in our faith and endurance. So once again, we kind of come back to this theme of the sympathetic high priest, the one who is sympathetic to our struggles. That God sees you. Amen. That God does not forget. And he's trying to get them to remember all these things. You know, that moment where there's a piece, there's a part of a song that just hits you in a certain way and you can barely sing because you're choked up. Remember that, because that's God breaking through. The word you got from a friend. The text out of the blue, and they didn't even know you needed it. Remember that. All those times you spent, those hours you spent in in Kids Cove, God sees that. When you're talking with the kids, you're talking with someone, you feel like you're just talking to the wall, God sees that. All the days getting up here and plugging stuff in and unplugging it, God sees that. God is not unjust we tend to forget and if we just stopped and thought about the times we're sitting outside on a beautiful day and you're just looking at a tree bloom and you're wondering how could anyone not believe in a God when you start to piece together all the amazing things of this creation how can we forget and he's like remember these things because his desire is to coax us on Because we have a tendency to drift if we're not moving forward. And that's a reality. We all know that that's true. Amen. We beat ourselves, we actually beat ourselves up about that more than what we kind of read about here. This is just rhetoric. He's just playing with them to get their attention. But we do that. Devotion. It will pay off. I don't like that (laughs) phrase. It sounds like we're out to get something. But God sees us. God will not forget. All those hours, moms, 
Raising kids? That's tough. No offense, kids. You might be dull of understanding. and But it will pay off. God sees us. God is with us. And devotion to God is greater. Is greater than the indifference of drift. Right? Can we sing about that? Our labor is not in vain. Amen. Sound good?